0: Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination.
1: Podcast.
0: Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi everybody, you are listening to Living the Dream and you're here with me, Dave, and I'm very lucky tonight because I'm joined with the always wonderful Alexander Brown. Hi Alexander, how are you?
2: Hi Dave, nice to
0: talk to you. And where are you talking me to from, where (laughs) where are you currently sitting whilst you're talking to me?
2: I'm sitting in our new apartment in uh, Kunitachi in western Tokyo. In
0: All the way from Tokyo, international episode. Uh, look, That's I'm, right. I'm, like, I guess to start with, I should tell listeners that Alexander and I have known each other for probably about 20 years. Is yep. that about right? And That's likely, about right. yeah. And it's been a, a 20-year political conversation as well, you know, a comradeship involving a lot of discussions and a lot of activity, sometimes more close together and sometimes on the other side of the world. And tonight uh, we're here to talk about a new book, like this incredible book that you released last year called Anti-Nuclear Protest in Post-Fukushima, Tokyo. Um, it, It comes out of your PhD thesis, right? That's right, yep. So, uh, look, I've got to say, I'm just going to piss in your pocket for a little bit here. Like, often I'm a bit suspicious of kind of, like, social movement studies, if that makes sense, because you often, like, can really see the distance from the author and the social movement. But the thing that was, like, so incredible about this book is, like, there's a lot that's really incredible about it, but you really feel your engagement in that social struggle, that this is not some detached pseudo objective study, but is really an engagement with a struggle from within. Do you reckon that's a fair characterization?
2: Well, it's a very kind characterization, Dave, <laughs> but um, certainly that was my intention. And I think that's the, the, when you're talking about the praxis, then yes, that's how I saw what I was doing. And I'm glad that it's come through in the writing. Yeah.
0: So why, why did you take the, well, actually, maybe let's, let's pull back a bit. Like, so when we're talking about the anti-nuclear movement in Tokyo, in, in Japan, well, it's your book set in Tokyo, but, um, I guess you kind of talk about more widely across Japan. Why was this something you, you started writing about?
2: Potentially it's a very long story. Um, And, you know, one of the pieces I played around with as I was trying to write my thesis and book was the sort of preamble, which I don't think ever made it in there, really, of why (laughs) I ended up trying to write this book. But I guess um, it starts... um, Okay, so the the more immediate preamble is probably related to the fact that, um, as you said, we met 20 years ago, which was 1998 um that might be 21 years ago and leading into 1999 and the ultra globalization movement and and then flowing from that into the anti-war movement in australia that we were involved with and many other struggles in particular in Wollongong struggles over um development of um public land for private housing and desolation of aboriginal heritage sites, environmental struggles all kinds of struggles that we saw as part of, I guess, a kind of, um, well, I'm, maybe I'm speaking retrospectively now, but sort of part of this kind of post-industrial um, shift in, in struggle towards environmental movements, peace movements, etc. cetera, um, even though we had a strong grounding in sort of Marx and the workers' movement as our theoretical base, we are in that social movement sort of time in a way. Um, and I guess by sort of 2008 when I I came to Japan um, Not to write my thesis, but to work um, Work a, a job and kind of try and start to make some contacts and in the activist scene here I was probably a bit like you at a bit of a crossroads in terms of Politically where we were going, you know, yeah, the, I agree. the anti yeah, and I think ultimately what this book is is sort of my coming to terms with, um, the possibilities inherent in struggle in a kind of very, uh, fragmented and, um, polyvalent sort of world, um, where, you know, there's no clear social subjects like the working class that we sort of talked about so much, um, in a perhaps, simplistic way let's say in the early 2000s um it's a it's a grappling with the multiplicity and the complexity of social struggle and and i guess that also comes out in my reading of autonomy negri etc um so the book in a way was trying to deal with those issues and trying to deal with some of the sort of despair really that came out of particularly let's say the um the anti-war struggle and well and the post anti-war struggle, I guess, (laughs) you know, when the, when the war happened and and the sort of rise of state terrorism. Um, Yeah. The slightly, yeah, yeah, I guess uh, if I continue, why Japan? It's partly related to the fact that I had actually, I, I often tell this story, but, you know, as a child of the 1980s, I was born in 1981, and going to school, um, high school in the 1990s, we were part of a generation formed in that sort of Keating period of Asian languages. And I studied Japanese from year seven. I went on exchange to Japan in high school. And, you know, my, my partner, um, Melanie, she did Indonesian and went in, in Indonesian exchange. So those were the two main languages that were part of that sort of push towards Um, Asia that that happened in the sort of I guess late 80s 90s in Australia and I had having had that base in language study and having lived here when it sort of came time to kind of step out of my usual world and go and and live somewhere else and and look at struggle from a different perspective it seemed natural to go back to 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 go back to Japan and um, and find out what was happening there
0: Look, There's already there's a lot of stuff there, Alexander, that's like really, really fascinating, um, but just to start with the last point that you're talking about is, you know, I, I currently really, I get really interested in like what the kind of ideological and political direction of Australia was like in those Keating years compared to... Um, What came after Howard and the different directions. But one thing I remember, not just it was their turn to Asia, but the way that Japan as an ideological figure functioned in Australia in the 80s and the first half of the 90s. Where it was always presented as this kind of society of um, like that we were in competition with a Japanese model. And the Japanese model was one where people worked incredibly long hours, but it was a society that was incredibly technically complicated and proficient. And the, in the if Australia didn't go through a reform period, um, that, you know, would somehow be left behind. And Japan became emblematic with the future, at least that was presented in Australian society. But the Japan... That we encounter in your book, and you know, the Japan that I've, I've been to with you, is a radically different place than that ideological figment, isn't it?
2: Yeah, um, that's right. And but I suppose that that um, you use the word figment. I think that's a nice one. It's a sort of let's call it the ghost that's haunting <laughs> Japan. Is that the ghost of of the nineteen eighties kind of Japan? Ink, That was the kind of word that that was used a lot at the time. Now, um, I think I don't. You're a few years older than me, but when I was uh, a kid and and then a student, I wasn't really aware of that. And um, you know that model of Japan, um, as Japan Inc. Has the sort of you know, the, the corporate warrior image of the Japanese salaryman and the sort of incredible economic power of the of the Japanese economy at that period. And so having sort of actually, I mean, I started saying Japanese, um, sort of early 90s, but um, my sort of, the, anyway, the, the sort of more recent engagement that comes from this book is very much the post-bubble um, era and so that sort of boom economy that inspired global management, you know, culture to, um, bring in sort of Toyotaism, which was sort of seen as the Japanese take on Taylorism and, um, trying to, to compete globally or even, or to emulate the Japanese model in various ways. Of course, in the early 1990s, the Japanese economy went through a tremendous, um, recession. And in many ways, that recession has never really, I mean, the recession ended, but the Japanese economy has never really recovered its dynamism of the sort of really what was from the 1950s, 1960s, the the really high growth period, the sort of 10% per year growth period happened in that time. Um, But the figment of that um, Japan as a nation of hardworking corporate warriors, who are going to sort of take over the world with this time, not with you know the, the bullets and bombs of um, the Second World War, but through their sort of superior um, organisation of labour and um, and I guess yeah, just hard work culture is a sort of constant um, constant ghost haunting the reality of like incredibly low wage fairly depressed sort of, sort of economy of, you know, 1990s, 2000s, and even now really um, the much sort of hailed Abenomics period when, you know, the, the new economic policies brought in by the current government of Abe Shinzo. I mean, they're, they're often talked of quite positively in, in, in the financial press, but there's no major improvement in, in the sort of economic growth side of things.
0: And I think this begins to touch on one of the main interesting threads of your book. Is that in many ways what you're talking about starts a long time before the Fukushima. What's the is it Fukushima event? Is that the rest the language I should be using? How do people in Japan talk about
2: the, um, the meltdown? What's the I term? call it the Fukushima disaster. I think in the book mainly. Okay. Um, the thing is that the the three eleven is often what the term it's referred to, and I, I don't know that that's particularly. Consciously re- referencing 9 11, but um, 311 refers to the earthquake, the tsunami, and the nuclear disaster, a triple disaster that occurred um, on the sort of 11th and 12th of March uh, 2011. So there was a, an enormous magnitude 9 earthquake off the northeast coast of Japan. That earthquake caused significant damage, but the real damage was triggered by the tsunami, an enormous tsunami wave that. That earthquake um, caused, and then mainly due to water damage. Although we now know the earthquake did damage the nuclear power plant at Fukushima Daiichi nuclear reactor, um, but mainly it was the tsunami. So the company had ignored advice that their tsunami protection w- walls um, were too low, that their diesel backup diesel generators were were positioned not high enough. Um, in the event of such a severe tidal wave they were in fact knocked out and so when the the power supply was interrupted um, to the plant the backup diesel generators on site were washed out and there was no backup power provided that meant the cooling systems that keep the reactor uh, how like the cool each of the nuclear reactors were not functioning and without that Constant cooling, the incredible heat of the nuclear fission going on inside, um, eventually led to a core meltdown in two, or at least two, maybe it was three of the uh, of the six reactors that were then sort of in um, in use at Fukushima Daiichi plant. So, yeah, Fukushima disaster, or, or yeah, or Three Eleven, are the the two ways of referring to it.
0: Now that you are talking about it, so what was the impact then on? on the people living in the area? Um,
2: in, in the area of the actual yeah. um, nuclear power? I mean, I guess one of the things that's often difficult, especially when you're talking about those very first few days, weeks, even months, is that, of course, the biggest and most direct impact of the disaster was the tsunami. I mean, people lost homes, whole villages were swept away. There's a classic image of a large, you know, ocean-going sh- ship dumped in the middle of a, you know a city street, that people listening to this podcast have probably seen. It's one of those images that really did did the rounds. Um, So, I mean, the immediate impact was mainly tsunami-related. And it was several days, really, before um, the the government... Well, I mean, for a start, the the actual... The interruption of the cooling uh, happened following the disaster, but it actually took a couple of days before... It was actually the next day, the 12th, that you had the hydrogen explosion inside um, one of the reactor um, containment vessels that kind of made it obvious that something was going on inside. That's sort of the thing about these nuclear reactors. You can't go in, um, into, you know, you can't sort of, certainly not when everything was knocked out, they couldn't really see the, the core. So it was like, what was happening outside that let people know what was happening? So, yeah, look, I can't really remember the exact timeline now, but basically within a couple of days after the government and the the operator, Tokyo Electric Power Company, were uh, aware that a serious disaster was taking place, they mainly tried to contain the information about that and to, relatively speaking, downplay the whole thing. But there was an evacuation zone ultimately declared first they told people to stay inside their homes within about a 20 kilometer radius but eventually they had to evacuate everyone from a 20 kilometer um, radius and i think from 20 to 30 kilometers was where they asked people to stay inside their homes um, don't think the full 30ks was ever evacuated but i do get i get some of the details <laughs> i think they are in my book
0: so you can check and so, like, what role does nuclear power play in the Japanese economy and what role do these, these power companies play in the state?
2: Yeah, okay, so that's, you know, I'm, I'm on much shorer ground to answer that off the top of my head. So, look, before the disaster happened, um, they were providing about 30% of the electricity needs of Japan. Um, So not, you know, I mean, a, a large, large percentage, not the majority, but um, large. There were 54 reactors um, operating around the country. I think the second part of your question is probably more interesting to the, and it's easy to get sort of bogged down in the nuclear details. And my book, in a way, tries to just kind of deal with that stuff in chapter one and then move on because I'm not a nuclear scientist or a. Um, I'm an expert on those things, and I was mainly looking at the, the, the human side of it. So, the economic role is really the critical thing. In, in the sort of develop, early days of Japanese capitalism, electricity was a kind of laissez-faire market, and so you had all kinds of small um, generators and distributors starting to crop up in the early 20th century. With the um, the growing uh, the growth of the war uh, and, and the sort of integration of the state that accompanied Japan's increasing move towards a war footing in the 1930s, 1940s. Eventually, they nationalized electricity um, to basically provide a steady supply for the war effort. Now, after the war um, you then had this um, national monopoly company and so what the Occupational Authorities did in, you know, and, the, and the, with the, the, the Japanese government at the time was they broke that national monopoly into a number, a series of regional monopolies. So each regional monopoly had exclusive generation supply rights to a particular geographical area. So I mentioned the Tokyo Electric Power Company, which runs the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. Um, name gives it away. They were responsible for Tokyo and a few small areas around there. Now those... Regional, they, so they were also privatised. So you had essentially a nationalised company um, with that level. You know, I mean, they have a nationally guaranteed monopoly over supply and distribution of power, but privately owned. So this, they were sort of became a paradigmatic paradigmatic example of the kind of you know private. Um, almost want a like private state or the, or the sort of you have private interests basically exercising power at a sort of almost a state level. Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: not no, really it does because I guess it's, this is kind of like, you know, I guess in Australia when we talk about things like the Asian development state, I don't know if you think that's a viable term or not. Like one of the emphasis is always on this kind of interrelationship between state, um, large private companies and um, financing and educational institutions forming some kind of combine. Is, is Zayabatsu the term that's used in Japan? Is that accurate or have I got my language wrong?
2: Yeah, so the Zaibatsu were the big um, industrial conglomerates that were officially broken up after the war. They were the pre war um, Mitsubishi, oh, okay. Mitsui, etc. They were officially broken up as part of the kind of democratization um, process. But of course, they man- maneuvered effectively to create an alternative kind of organizational structure. Um, however, the electric monopolies are separate um, from those large companies, but they have a similar sort of role in that they were so vast and so um, economically powerful that, you know, so many other aspects of the economy came to rely on them. For example, especially when it comes to building nuclear power plants. So, you know, again, if we sort of spend too much time on the history, we'll probably never get up to the current stuff. But... As an example, when Japan moves into nuclear power, and this is very much a move that is sponsored by the United States interests, uh, including their secret sort of apparatus within Japan, the key figure there being um, the head of the Yomiuri newspaper, who played a key role in helping to sort of promote nuclear power in the 1950s through his media um, empire and politics.
0: And, and was a and US, U.S. asset, to- did you say? He
2: was a US asset, yeah. Um, what is his name? Shorti Himatsu, something. He was. He was a CIA asset. Um, and so you had this sort of, um, co- you know, co- combination of interests, really. I mean, this was a policy that the US applied throughout the world was to get their allies involved in the civil nuclear program following the Adams for Peace speech. Just to just sort of skip over <laughs> all of the, the gritty details. So as um, Japan moves to nuclear power. One of the um, incentives that's built into the legislation um, for the electrics uh, power companies is a guaranteed rate of return on investment in in electrical generating technology. So it's around three percent. So, in other words, the more money they spend, the more money they make. And so the general contracting companies that built the nuclear, the actual physical infrastructure for the the operators, um, local governments that came to rely on the many subsidies that were provided by both the state and by the operators in the regions where they were being built, such as around the Fukushima Daiichi plant. You had this whole collection of different actors that came to rely on nuclear energy and these large um, monopoly companies. And that phenomenon really emblematizes that development's developmental state um, idea that you know originally comes from Chalmers Johnson's study of Japan's Ministry of um, International Trade and Industry, which was the key indus- the key government body responsible for supporting the development of nuclear power. Later became the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, which is um, what it currently is known as, and which was responsible. Controversially, especially after Fukushima disaster, for both promotion and regulation of the technology.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. So, so it, it's short that it, it's it's crucial, right, and it, it's deeply integrated in part of the into the into the state. So, um, I think this is becomes really important in your book then to understand like when we're talking about the anti-nuclear movement, it's not simply a. a, a a protest movement or targeted against a kind of technology it really becomes a movement about the operation of power in its other sense within Japanese society
2: yeah that's right I, if I take one more small historical detour it's um, I think it's relevant to mention that after Chernobyl in particular You know, Chernobyl is a lot closer to Japan than it is to Australia, and there was some impact in terms of fallout um, in Japan and certainly, um, you know, imports from Europe. There was a really strong um, reaction to that disaster, especially from consumer movements that were concerned about food safety, um, often um, movements of women. Uh, and feminist movements, eco-feminist movements came out of that as well, the 1980s. And essentially you had the what's known as the anti-nuclear new wave movement come up at that time. And it was a large national-scale movement um, and significantly probably one of the, the sort of largest national-scale movements since the earlier waves of protests in the 60s um, and early 70s against... Japan's military alliance with the U.S. So uh, anyway, after that, basically, you don't really have much expansion of nuclear um, technology in Japan. And in fact, that reflects the whole world, yeah, that that the nuclear industry is one of those industries that's constantly telling everyone that it's about to um, take off, but really no major investment has occurred since the, it's something like about the end of the 1980s no nucle- new nuclear power plants were being built um, Really, none much were in the pipeline and then in the early sort of mid 2000s you had this so called nuclear renaissance which I'm sure you've you've heard about and it did the rounds all over the world we have our own sort of advocates for it in Australia Bob Hawke's quite a, quite a big um, name in that sort of nuclear what do you call it promoters kind of club and they were talking they were trying to use the rise of the green movement to promote nuclear energy. You know, oh, this is a green technology. And so from about 2006, you know, the intention was let's expand nuclear energy, you know, and, and that was where government planning was going. Um, so when, um, yeah, so when the disaster happens uh, and people start to respond to it, as you really just explained, and I draw in my book a lot here on Ogoma um, I think, quite insightful writing about this. It really becomes symbolic not only of the sort of many concrete problems of radiation, um, which, you know, high levels of radiation were recorded all over Tokyo after, after the nuclear disaster. Um, you had a high level of anxiety about what was going on not a lot of information coming out from the government and often people were not trusting what information was coming out. Um, All of that's true, but what seems to have, you know, what what seems to have happened is that in some ways it was that relationship between the governing party, the Liberal Democratic Party, the, the large bureaucracy, so especially the Ministry for Economy, Trade and Industry, but in general the sort of the ministry, Um, large corporations, such as the nuclear um, power companies, and then the media interests that were were sort of selling this idea that, you know, nothing had happened, that everything was fine, and, of course, also academics who, um, some you know, many of whom, especially in the sort of nuclear science field, um, are heavily enmeshed in that sort of nuclear, so-called nuclear village. So the movement really became a bit of an anti, it took on an anti-systemic character because it saw the commonality between all of these different actors in this sort of nuclear, let's call it nuclear capitalism for the purpose of your podcast, you know, a particular form of of capitalist organisation that is highly dependent upon the state. Interestingly enough, Advocates of neoliberalism and neoliberalization, such as at the time that the, the name that, that, that um, really sprung up was the SoftBank, which is one of the big mobile phone carriers. Its chief executive, Son Masayoshi, came out against nuclear power um, after Fukushima on the argument that this is a monopoly capitalism protected by the state and it's choking innovation, it's choking, you know, the sort of, the animal spirits of the market and so It's preventing something like heavy regulation and this monopoly guarantee is preventing entrepreneurs like him from say Getting into solar on a mass scale and building a solar infrastructure and and so there was a um, Partly perhaps what made the movement so um, Grow so large and, and you know have support not just in the streets, but also in many levels of, like the elites as well, was the sort of association with nuclear technology and the old bad monopoly kind of development state capitalism of the post-war period. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's, that's, that's fascinating. So in some ways it, it becomes like the opposition to, nu- to nuclear power is not something that, that comes out of the social movements we'll talk about but different factions for capital as well looking for a way to deal with the kind of 20-year malaise that Japanese capitalism is in. Now,
2: Yeah, it's a perfect storm of those two interests coalescing, you know. And, of course, it's very imp- relevant that when the disaster happened, really for the first it's not really for the first time because so uh, in, in post-war japan the liberal democratic party which is a, an alliance of, commun- of of conservative parties that was formed in 1955 has basically been in government for most of the post-war period there was a brief interruption um to that during the 1990s but one of those non-ldp governments was actually a coalition with the ldp a coalition between the socialist party and the ldp Uh, and another one was a sort of slightly more um, heterodox um, coalition, which didn't last very long anyway. So basically most of the post-war period, which is the period in which this nuclear infrastructure is being built, you have one governing party, the Liberal Democratic Party, and it's a party which closely integrates all of the actors I've already mentioned before in various ways. Now that party was not in government. In 2009, for the first time, I mean, as I said, not for the first time, but but certainly for the first time in about uh, 15 years, and apart from those two brief periods in the 90s, it was the first kind of serious um, loss or ability of an opposition party, which was the Democratic Party of Japan, to actually take government. So the, the sort of the main party of the nuclear village was not in power. When the disaster happened and that actually opened up a few opportunities I think at the sort of elite level at the state level for struggle to take place over nuclear power And even more significantly the prime minister um khan was actually in many ways A product of the social movements himself. He came out of an early kind of um political movement around consumer politics and um he had, the Democratic Party of Japan is a very strange animal, but he was um, from its kind of social movement sort of um, faction, let's say, and he was prime minister. So that sort of meant that, you know, at, from the prime minister's level, you had him launching various attacks on nuclear, um, on the nuclear village. Just as at the same time, the party contained key nuclear supporters, such as Politicians who were supported by the large conservative unions that represent electric company workers. So it was it was that sort of complexity of the context that, it, that sort of enabled such a massive movement to take off
0: so before we start actually talking about the movement your analysis of it actually starts earlier with looking at the kinds of struggles that emerged as that model of japanese capitalism went into crisis and particularly the guarantee of of full-time lifelong jobs disappeared and also looking at how those struggles that emerged then thought the history of japanese radicalism you know thought about what the experience of the 60s and 70s had been and then tried to look further back into japanese history to find a language for radicalism can and i think i guess like the way it's often discussed is is around using this term "freeters" as a term to describe you know what we might call the precariat developing in in japan can you give us some understanding of uh what these what this movement was what it did and what were the currents in it
2: Uh, Yes, I just noticed we've been talking for nearly an hour, (laughs) so it's good that we're getting into this topic. So look, um, sometimes there's a story told about um, the bubble economy of the 1980s and of the good old days of economic growth, and then the bad old days of the 1990s when, you know, the bubble burst and the shit hit the fan and everything sort of started to go south for Japan. But the fact is that, of course, high economic growth is a measure of, you know, capital. It's capital's measure for for understanding the success of society. It's not. Um, it's not certainly not a communist measure for doing so, and it's not necessarily the measure for happiness or, you know, social um, integration. So,
0: or you know, even how much, an- term, or even how much, sorry, anta- yes. or even how much antagonism is going on in a society, either. You know, so in the
2: 19 um, you, 80s, you had the bubble economy you at the same time you had the emergence of people really questioning the values that went along with this obsession with you know um, economic growth the sort of economic animal um, the idea that people you know should become an economic animal and out of that came um, um, some of the different early movements of freetas. Now, the term freeter was actually coined by a recruitment magazine um, and it combines the English word free with the German word um, Arbeit, so which is work. Now, Arbeiter, loosely speaking, um, Arbeiter was the term for a part time worker and then free part timer. Free part timer is freeter. So these free-to kind of jobs started to um, be advertised in the 1980s as kind of for students or for, you know, creative professionals who were building their career in a in a particular area but needed, you know, work to kind of fill in. And because wages were high and everyone was um, feeling optimistic about the future of the economy, the idea of a free-to as someone who was, you know, um, Let's say, you know, wanting to become an artist, um, they could earn reasonably good work doing money doing part time work. But I guess going back to the sort of autonomous um, theory that we briefly mentioned at the beginning of this, you know, one of the, the key concerns of autonomous ideas is to try and understand how the shift from the kind of mass worker based society to a kind of post industrial society where work becomes more fragmented. And that was starting to happen in the 1980s before the bubble actually burst. So by the sort of 1990s, you start to have emergence of groups like DAME Damairen was um, one of the key early groups um, in Tokyo, mainly, that were looking at these issues of work, life, gender roles. You know, one of the sort of characteristics of that post-war economic growth was a very strict gendered hierarchy of of, uh, labor, where basically male labour was coded as work outside the home and, you know, in a sort of the ideal was that you'd have a full-time job with a prestigious company. Of course, that was never the the case even for the majority of male workers, but women's work was coded as work within the home and the reality was that women did work, um, older people and young people did work, and they filled a lot of the Um, lesser-paid jobs, part-time casual jobs, etc. But this sort of hegemonic idea um, of the kind of male salary worker and the female full-time housewife as the kind of perfect couple with their, you know, 2.3 children, or the equivalent thereof, these were all the sorts of ideas that were starting to be challenged by some of the kind of alternative people. And and a lot of these people were not necessarily uh, involved in what, what we would recognize as the left or social movements as such. They may have been dropouts from high school or dropouts from university. Some of them were the famous recluses, the hikikomori, so people who basically just refused to leave their rooms, um, which is a phenomenon about Japan that's widely reported in the, you know um english language m- media so people who are sort of in various ways feeling like they weren't fitting in with society starting to have conversations about well what was wrong with you know this kind of gendered work-based idea of what life is um and how society should function parts of that intersected with the remnants of the student movement and you talked before about the history side of the thesis and, and of the movements, and one of the, the aspects that made it, I guess, difficult in some ways for new movements to emerge in the 1980s and 1990s was the legacy of, especially in the 1970s, where after a very intense decade in the 1960s of student protest, um, there was a descent into factional warfare between different student left groups, that warfare, especially. Literally including literal, like, brawls, um, killings, the famous case of the osama Sunsaw incident where um, a particular group of Japanese Red Army it was kind of a, a merger of two different Red Army factions, ended up, um, after a sort of spate of, of robberies, including robberies of police stations to acquire weapons, um, ended up sort of holed up in... A remote mountain ski lodge engaging in a sort of arcane um, series of purges, internal purges, where after the incident was resolved it was discovered you know a whole bunch of them had basically murdered each other. These kind of incidents of spectacular violence not only were in themselves obviously horrific and um, meaningful but they were also Mediatize and skillfully mediatise to create a sort of negative impression of student politics as a whole. And so, for those reasons, um, there wasn't a lot of direct continuity between a kind of 60s student radicalism and, let's say, sort of 80s, 90s um, free to activism.
0: But the, some of those 60s organizations radicalism. still exist, though, don't they? Yes.
2: So um, the, the kind of um, basically political party factions um, of that time, a couple of the larger ones are still definitely out there. They're active, but relatively small and quite isolated from um, social movements as such, especially in Tokyo where, um, you know, there's a very vibrant non-party or non-sectarian social movement culture that um, isn't particularly – it's fairly hostile to that kind of – those kind of parties. I
0: know know that I've seen you uh, have, a I guess, a debate with a a Japanese comrade about um, the legacy of the 60s and 70s where the Japanese comrade seemed to say that there was pretty much a clean break – between the 60s and 70s struggles and then the movements that emerged in the 90s then became part of the alter globalization movement and then um, into the anti-nuclear struggles. But you seem to argue there was more of a complex set of continuities as well as divergences.
2: Yeah, I think you know, it's, a, it's always fascinated me um, how difficult some of these issues can be to talk about in, in Japan. So my own background, I guess, you know, and as you know very well, is I came into the movement really through getting engaged with people who were involved in, had been in the Communist Party, had been in an international socialist organisation, let's say. Um, at the time in Wollongong when I was a student and starting to get involved in the movement, the biggest group on campus was resistance, which was part or allied to the Democratic Socialist Party. So these were left-wing parties that went back, you know, I mean, the Communist Party itself wasn't around, but the people who were in it. Um, for me, it felt like a like a continuity. Um, but then for other people that we went to university with and got involved in protests, especially, let's say, around the environment movement, those continuities were quite separate. So there's some, or, or, you know, there wasn't so much continuity or there was a real sense of we're not, we're not Marxists. We're not part of that old left. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, no, definitely.
2: And But whereas I guess for, for, for you and I, we saw ourselves as in some ways part of an ongoing tradition of kind of Marx or marxist influence. Yeah, e- even, even, critica- even if critical, you know, it was like a criticism sure, from within. Yeah. So I guess in some ways, like, you know, those complex questions of historical continuity... They're not completely removed from our experience either, but I've certainly found, yeah, in in the Japanese context, there seems to be a real desire to separate new forms of struggle from those party political movements of the 1960s and early 1970s. In some ways, that emerged at that time as well. So, you know, the the umpore struggle of 1960 was the biggest social movement in post-war Japan, certainly up until these recent nuclear struggles, (laughs) and centred around the question of whether Japan should remain in a military alliance with the United States. Now, you know, the, the various, at that time, the Communist Party, the Japan Socialist Party, and um, student movement groups that were allied with other um, sort of, you know, the the smaller left-wing parties played a dominant role in those struggles. But from that time, you had groups emerging that were explicitly building a, a, a politics around the idea of the citizen, the Shimin, Shimin Undo, and their sort of, their attempt was to break from I guess, an orthodoxy, a dogmatism that is tied up with, you know, the, the, the legacy of communist and socialist politics in Japan and also around the world. So in some ways you could say this this kind of tension's been there for a while. <clears throat> but certainly in, in, in regards to the anti-nuclear movement that I sort of, you know, focus on in this book and, and the to movement that, that, you know, I see it as emerging from, there is a real sense of trying to maintain a distance from particularly the kind of student radicalism of the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, and the idea of the parties, you know, the, the, these parties and sectarian. I guess the word is sector, and the idea is of sectarianism. And, you know, those inter, those sectarian battles that took place at that time were so intense, they certainly did create a strong Um, aversion to to what they were doing amongst you know anyone who wasn't directly involved and there was also an incredible crackdown on them but you know those continuities one of the people i met early in my sort of journey into this stuff in my phd was a a professor from university of hawaii called patricia steinhoff and interestingly she hasn't actually published a lot of her work um her key book is actually only available still in japanese um and it's about the the red army but in her various talks that i was able to 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 attend and, and some of this stuff's coming out a bit more now she's been running up a bit more she talks about the idea of the invisible civil society and one of the things she talks about is Things like the, the support groups of the people who were convicted through some of the various trials around the Red Army. So the, the Red Army were um, groups were engaged in various kinds of um, hijackings, robberies, other kinds of terrorist activities. And of course, you know, people were also falsely accused. Uh, some of the other sex, you know, people were involved in various acts of or accused of being involved in various acts of violence or other criminal acts that meant that they then spent years in jail, courts, etc. So a lot of her work focused on um, the support groups that formed around those trials. And each group would put out a newsletter and have working bees and, and sort of maintain correspondence clubs to keep, you know, in touch with the, the prisoner over, you know, long periods of, of kind of trials and, and um, appeals, etc. And more, and, and that infrastructure of groups kind of spills over then into all the different kinds of issues that are coming up at that time. I guess another another um, big kind of movement to emerge out of that kind of okay, the, the you could say the failure of the student movement or of that was kind of consumer movement. So people, and that takes all different forms too. People moving to the countryside to sell organic farms and then creating networks with consumers in the cities to try and, you know, bypass the, you know, distribution networks, mainstream sort of distribution networks so that people could buy organic milk and organic, you know, foods or low, um, you know, low pesticide use foods directly, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of overlap. And one of the things that I've tried to get across in the book and which I hopefully what now that I'm back here, I'm going to try and build more, is the kind of multi-layers of civil society in Japan. It's one of the things I find so interesting is the way, you know, you're sort of organic consumer cooperative. You might not know that old, you know, Mr... Why actually back in the day was part of that, you know, student radical group but that maybe doesn't talk about it that much now, but actually then kind of went into this kind of consumer movement and has continued that for 30 years. And then when issues like the nuclear movement crop up, then this infrastructure of different small groups and networks was able to be mobilized in, in a way in quite a non, um, you know, quite a horizontal way because it's of its density
0: mm. yeah and that history is still kind of living in, the, in those kind of networks as well isn't it yeah those but experiences but, continue to circulate
2: but you know that and, and and a complex memory of you know of there's a there's a guy carl pascard he's a researcher in in sweden and he uses the idea of trauma and he uses a kind of a Freudian um, framework and I quite like what he what he argues in his book, uh, Youth Movements, something, something. but he talks about the idea that the trauma of those violent protest movements and of the violent repression that they focused basically pushed activism out of the, the public sphere and out of, um, I guess, the, the reality of, of most people and that in that period of, there was a kind of period of recovery where the repressed memory of that wasn't really talked about and that the, the to movements in a way created a kind of, tried to find new ways of expressing um, dissent while dealing with the trauma of, you know, the of violence of the sort of 1970s. And then he talks about the idea of recovery and that, you know, through these various kinds of often very small scale, maybe inward looking groups like Damian and I mentioned before, it really was a talking circle. They weren't really that engaged in overt political protest. They were more about trying to bring people together who were feeling dissatisfied to learn how to talk to one another, trying to, and develop some kind of Spaces where people could share their dissatisfactions But the reality is that that experience of that loose network, you know If you follow some of those individuals through that sort of next 10 to 20 years of different protest movements They're often at the forefront of all kinds of protests. And so it's sort of the reclamation of sociality as well, you know um, I think Mm. contemporary Japan can be a very isolating society and part of what social movements do is bring people to rebuild a social fabric in the face of, you know, increasingly individualized and atomized lives.
0: Mm. I've been reading this guy, just started reading him a couple of days ago, this, this guy called Sylvan Lazarus and I'm, I'm probably misun, misunderstanding or misrepresenting his argument but he has like two key statements and the first one is that people think you know, like he's, and he, what he's trying to do is really, I guess, kind of resuscitate. He was he's a, was a mate with Alain Badiou, resuscitate a kind of radical politics coming out of the French Maoist experience, breaking with a lot of those certainties of 70s politics that, you know, like, because there exists a working class, it's going to have a working class politics that looks like this. And what he replaces it with is, you know, when people get together in associations and struggles that they think... and and that that thought produces a a new politics and it's it's so like it like it seems so obvious but so often when we're talking about struggles we don't assume the kind of active collective process of thinking that's going on and that you know these people in japan going through these different cycles of struggle are thinking it together and they're not just kind of oh they're not just dominated By their history or dominated by the movement of capital but they're engaging in this creative process which begins to understand their historical experience does that make sense yeah absolutely Uh, and i guess i guess as well like this is fascinating but like i guess maybe if you could like when we're talking about the frita just jumping ahead a little bit so the Frida movement before fukushima what does it look like? So, what kind of things does it start doing, and how does it kind of connect with the global trends of the alter globalization and anti-war movement to kind of get a kind of consistency before Fukushima starts?
2: Yeah, I mean, as as you know, Dave, this was the first time you and I spent time in Japan together was back in two thousand and eight when the G eight came to Japan for the first time. Well, not for the first time, but for the first time. Um, where there was a large protest movement to meet it. And, um, yes, <laughs> and as you know, I mean you, you were there to speak at a, at a conference, um, a sort of radical counter-conference to kind of talk about um, the, the capitalist agenda of the GA and the alternatives that were emerging in struggle around the world at that time. Now, you know, the, the, you can what you can clearly sort of take from that is the way that people in japan were looking at i mean much like we were in Wollongong looking at movements like seattle in 1999, or you know the various other ultra globalization summit protests that were taking place in the early 2000s and trying to well basically engage in that global anti-neoliberal movement but also, I guess, to borrow from it to reinvigorate their own movements. So the to struggles, um, one of the things I've really found key was the Iraq War. And the Iraq War, um, the turn towards the Iraq War, so I guess it started with you know, 9-11 terrorist attacks and then the Afghanistan War and then, then the full um, attempting. And remember, Japan actually became part of the Coalition of the willing. And part of Japan's post-war constitution is, is a ban on um, the maintenance of armed forces, which has been sort of ignored through a loophole uh, or through a sort of creative interpretation of the constitution by uh, government beginning actually very soon after the constitution was formed. But the, the Iraq war was the first time when the government actually tried to send Japanese troops to a, to a foreign theatre of, you know, of war as opposed to a UN peacekeeping operation, and that generated or sort of um, re-revived what was a very long-standing tradition of um, peace movements. But it also, um, so so a lot of those groups had been active over those issues for a long period of time, Is what I mean. But it also tapped into a couple of other big movements. One was the rise of NGOs, which are called MPOs here, which had sort of started in the 1990s. Um, One of the big moments was another big earthquake disaster in 1995 in the city of Kobe. Now, that earthquake caused extensive damage, partly because um, Kobe was not known to be particularly earthquake prone. And so unlike in, say, Tokyo, where you have high levels of earthquake proofing in buildings, there wasn't that much there. The government struggled to respond and large amounts of volunteers went down there to help rebuild and to deal with the various issues that came out of it. And a lot of those, that sort of was one of the the key moments in the development of a kind of MPO, NGO culture. The other side of it was people influenced um, by, yeah, those very trends that you were just talking about, the sort of alter globalization, um, anarchism and by anarchism I mean the kind of new anarchism of the alter globalization period you know the, the new anarchists as Graver called them um and you had a small number of artists DJs etc starting to hold street parties as part of the demonstration so putting on um rave music off the back of a truck and dancing against war and those really built up in the freedom movement you also had coming out of that uh a sort of free-to-union movement. So people forming small unions. Um, Japan's labour laws enable quite small unions to be formed quite freely. So you don't need that many people to actually form a legal union, and then you can engage in, you know, like various kinds of legal bargaining with employers, etc., or lodging complaints about working conditions. So some of these groups started organising around precarious work. Um, in different sectors, and another sort of perhaps slightly um, separate but critical to the anti-nuclear movement um, was the emergence of the amateur revolt, the Shirotonora network. Now, that's an interesting one. It's a sort of group of different shops, um, second-hand shops, um, they had a small at that time they have, no, they didn't have the bar then they now have a small bar, which is kind of collectively
0: run. Is it we went to that, didn't we? I think, I think we did and yes there, like we went to this little bar and there was like you know seven people behind the counter, but it was kind of just like a party.
2: Yes, I think we did go there <laughs> but I, I
0: was re- I was really like uh, impressed with like how much infrastructure, like amateur revolt seem to have been able to assemble
2: yeah and you know that's um i guess why when the um nuclear disaster happened they were sort of in such a good position to organize um anti-nuclear protests and in the book the kind of <laughs> here we are to chapter two um, <laughs> chapter two is all about how that amateur revolt sort of network which again, like a lot of these kind of groups, you know, and this sort of decentralised multitude style of, of political organisation that I argue, you know, basically, or I characterise the movement, the anti movement with, was able to um, organise through its networks of networks of networks, you know. So amateur revolt, you know, I mean, who is amateur revolt? There's no exact answer to that question. It's not an official membership organisation. There are some key people who are clearly the, the main <clears throat> people associated with amateur revolt, people like Matsumoto Hajime. And his experience is interesting. He came through the student movement at Horsair University, which was one of the universities where the old kind of 1970s student movement culture was still quite alive. And in combination with a kind of student radicalism and student kind of you know musical culture, etc. So um, other groups were things like the Irregular Rhythm Asylum, the anarchist um, punk sort of DIY bookshop in, in Shinjuku, Tokyo, and a few other of these different spaces who had um, some years before the nuclear disaster started to work together create a newsletter through which they all basically advertised what different events they had, but also had little articles or, you know, little clips about different events that were coming up or, you know, interviews with the different people who were running those little spaces about what, why they were doing it, what it was about. So you had this kind of um, subculture of political organising around that, which really then, once the nuclear disaster happened, formed the first kind of major springboard for organising anti-nuclear protests.
0: And so when that emerges, what does the anti-nuclear movement do? What does it look like? Well, I suppose
2: the first, um, I mean, you know, it, it was so vast, and I was here from the very end of September in 2011, so six months after the disaster, Uh, for 18 months, and I actually was here briefly in in June as well, just three months after the disaster. And, you know, there was just no way to even kind of get a broad outline (laughs) in a way of just everywhere I went. If I went to one demonstration, I'd receive 20 different flyers and bits of propaganda and whatever, invitations to let's say, a movement that was getting a group of plaintiffs to launch a class action against, you know, TEPCO for this or that. Um, a group that was, you know, making calendars for Chernobyl victims to, you know, raise money for them. A group that was sending kids, school kids to Australia, so from Fukushima to Australia for a week, so they could have, you know, a week off being irradiated. You know, just the, the, the depth of it was sort of mind-blowing. So, the, the, you know, what I mainly focus on is those sort of Frita-based groups and what it looked like, what they their first response was to call a demonstration. So in April, um, I think it was the 10th, so basically it was one month after the disaster, they had the Genpatsu Yamiro, which means like no more nuclear power, uh, demonstration in Koyinti, which is kind of like the hub of the Sirofana Network. And they expected something around 1,000 people. They were thinking it would be the biggest demonstration they'd ever had because normally their demonstrations were a few hundred. And something like 15,000 people showed up. And that was a real sort of shock to the system for all the people involved. It was like, wow, this is is big. People really care about this issue. And so for sort of six months, you had similar sorts of demonstrations organised by that group of people. A combination of burnout um, some arrests kind of led them to peter out for a while but that initial impetus kind of kicked off the older more established groups like big anti-nuclear weapons as well as anti-nuclear power kind of networks that go back to the Japan Socialist Party days and the sort of um, post-war anti-nuclear movement around um, yeah, especially around anti-nuclear weapons as well <clears throat> So um, by sort of the end of 2012, when I actually did show up, you know, you had about 60,000 people, I think, was the, the December 2012 big rally. And that was organised by much more sort of mainstream, you know, big, big organisations. Um, you know, it was addressed by, for example, the Nobel laureate, Zabador, uh, who um who is quite a, an active... Um, or well, on all sorts of issues, but particularly nuclear and peace issues, um, and other sort of prominent, you know, voices from civil society. So then, going into 2012, and this is something I talk about more in the in the book, you had another coalition of anti-nuclear groups um, that emerged. A lot of these were groups that were sort of didn't necessarily have that same um, long history, either as free to groups or as anti nuclear groups. But um, the coalition called the Metropolitan Coalition Against Nukes started organising um, sort of um, standing on the sidewalk protests. So they were protests that don't need official police permission because you're not marching on the road in around March 2012. Those started to build up and up and up till in June, July, August, you had a hundred and then even two hundred thousand people demonstrating outside the Prime Minister's residence. And that really shook they were the biggest protests in yeah, since that nineteen sixty period. And it shook, you know, the foundations really of people's expectations, including those who participated.
0: And and how does the state respond to this?
2: So, you know, that earlier wave, as I said, of of the Frita groups, um, eventually they responded with some quite heavy policing. So in September 2011, a few people were arrested. Now, you know, in Australia, we tend to think, oh, well, you know, a few people get arrested at a demo, it's not that big a deal. If, If anything, I mean, there's a lot of groups that sort of try and get arrested, you know, that's a tactic, it's non-violent civil disobedience. It's a tactic to get arrested. But in Japan, um, getting arrested is a very uh, serious <laughs> proposition because the police can hold you for 21 days without charge, basically. A court does have to rubber stamp that, but they they invariably do. And um, the on the basis of that sort of dubious arrest charge, The police can search your home, they can go to your workplace, they can really make your life uncomfortable. And so people try and avoid anyone getting arrested as much as possible. And, um, you know, um, if someone does get arrested a demonstration, it's seen as a responsibility of the organisers and to really, you know, help the legal defence of that person and get them released. So that sort of process kind of um, led to a bit of, a, I guess, exhaustion and um, some hesitancy from those groups. That I said, it was sort of taken over by the the other larger, more established groups. So um, although that, that sort of crackdown did occur, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, you actually had a government that was um, it's self-divided on this issue and a prime minister openly Criticizing the nuclear industry. So there was a sort of uneasy um, Alliance even some argue with the police where you know many activists have talked about especially going into 2012 and the big demonstrations stuff outside the prime minister's residence. The police did not Really mount any major crackdowns or anything. It was a legal protest there were a few occasions when the number of people just exploded and they spilled out onto the road, which would technically be illegal, but the organisers basically cooperated with the police to um, end the protest at that point. And um, on the whole, the police were fairly, um, stand, you know, standing back, um, maintaining order, but not certainly not any sort of major repression. And many people have argued that that's because they were relatively, you know, the police were relatively sympathetic to the protesters and certainly that, you know, that there was no major push from on high to sort of um, get rid of the nuclear protests because, as I said, the state at various levels was itself divided on the issue. You know, there was a lot of anger towards TEPCO, the operator, and those who had sort of facilitated this kind of process um, of building an unsafe nuclear reactor in the first place.
0: Mm. So you know, this this happens, I guess, at the same time that the what we might call the movement of the squares is happening around the world. Is there some kind of resonance going on here?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, those references were made explicitly in some of the materials. Um, one I talk about in the book is, you know, pictures of some of the M1 um, encampments in Barcelona, I think, that were used to promote um, the idea of the no-nukes plaza, which was a, a sort of attempt to make the demonstrations last a bit longer by getting everyone to just hang around at the end in a in a relatively big open public space outside Shinjuku Station. So very explicit Um in 2012, uh, when you had the demonstrations more in the Prime Minister's residence and around the government district, there were lots of references to, you know, what was happening in the Middle East. Um, <clears throat> at one point, there was an attempt to kind of talk about a hydrangea revolution, although I have to say that never really took off. But, you know, it was it was a, obviously a riff on the Jasmine Revolution idea of the Arab Spring, there were lots and lots of um, attempts to draw what was happening into a broader conversation. Some of the Free Trade activists that I mentioned earlier actually travelled to New York and took part in the Occupy Wall Street um, encampment for, you know, a few days and, you know, engaged in kind of debates and talks with some of the organisers there. There was definitely a sense that, you know, this was part of a broader movement, even though the issue was kind of tied to this local manifestation of, you know, a nuclear disaster, that the broader anti-systemic kind of aspects of it, this kind of corruption of money and power and a lack of respect for life and for the environment um, was broader. And also lots of people travelled to Japan to sort of check this out, you know, me included in some ways. <clears throat> um, at one point outside of the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, which I mentioned is a kind of regulator and promoter of nuclear power, um, a, a tent was erected and a permanent sit-in camp, um, which lasted for years. It was recently shut down, but um, that sit-in camp was, because it was so prominent right there on the corner outside the ministry building, Lots of, you know, foreign media, visiting people, activists. Um, you know, I took a number of people. If, if, I, if I had a chance and anyone was visiting Japan while I was here, I took them there because it was a, a sort of such, such a accessible, visual, um, you know, permanent sort of centre of, of opposition. And it became a bit of a kind of they called it the tent plaza using that idea of a square as a kind of a open space for the creation of and maintenance of
0: community. So there's a couple of things about this that I, I want to talk about, but a small thing is um, the issue of the participation of Japanese nationalists in this movement.
2: Yeah, that, 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 that did become um, quite a controversial issue. Um, so... I guess, you know, this the first thing to note is that there's no obvious reason why only the left would be opposed to nuclear power. Um, and for some, uh, opposition to the, what had happened at Fukushima and to the nuclear industry came, took the form of a kind of defense of the national land and soil and the purity of the, of the Japanese people um, and so, so, yeah, some of the nationalist groups got involved, um, as well as I guess there was a certain amount of, uh, kind of grassroots nationalism in, the, in, in some of the rhetoric more broadly, but specifically actually right wing nationalist groups did organize around this issue, both in terms of volunteering to help people who've been directly affected, um, and in organizing, um, and taking part in demonstrations. Now, many of these free to groups, partly as a, we talked quite a lot before about the sort of legacy of 1960s and 70s and the the kind of bad name that left-wing sectarian groups have um, amongst a large number, a large proportion of activist community. I think that um, that is one of the reasons why they're kind of neither left nor right sort of idea was quite popular um and the idea that if we could find an issue like nuclear power where people can come together despite their ideological views being different then that should be the priority not um some people see the sort of left right you know cold war time you know as a bit tired or a bit like passe but of course these are serious issues. And when, you know, when one of the main organising groups actually invited a right wing, you know, explicitly, you know, right wing nationalist speaker, that led to a real um, revolt from some of the participants in that organising group who were, had more of a sort of anti-fascist, you know, um, especially like some of the punk groups that have a connection with antifa ideas more, more generally, Um, as well as a strong reaction from other activist groups who were concerned with issues such as the discrimination against ethnic Koreans, which is quite a serious issue and which, you know, that sort of took off as well in the wake of the um, nuclear, anti-nuclear protest was a big wave of counter-anti-hate, sort of anti far type demonstrations as well. So, yeah, the... the, the presence of those right-wing um, elements highlighted the, I guess, the sort of mass populist nature of anti-nuclear as an issue, the idea that this is an issue that people could approach from a wide variety of perspectives, you know, quite legitimately. Um, but then, of course, the question is how, how can you work with people who you know, think it's okay to discriminate against Koreans or, um, you know, people who are, who are promoting an ideology which in many ways you know, is, is central to the very sort of foundation of that developmental state, uh, you know, for those who had a more sort of, I guess, communist or left-wing political economic analysis, you know, they're looking at that level.
0: So um, just, what, yeah. just to jump in there, like I guess like for your friends and comrades, you know, like you just said, you're like a communist or left-wing analysis. What kind of like terms were they using to understand their critique of what was going on and what kind of society they saw this struggle as maybe perhaps moving towards?
2: Yeah, I don't think that's clear. I don't think I can really say, you know, that there is a clear, I can, I can live a clear answer to that. The, you know, the diversity is very real, but perhaps the thing I could say is that, you know, the, the groups and the individuals and the sort of movements that I have mainly sort of um, followed in the research, been involved with and become become close with some of the people is they're, they're really more associated with that civil society. When you use the term civil society, it doesn't, it's kind of a slightly different meaning, but the Simin, the, these kind of independent of political party movements. And that tends to go hand in hand with a, a fairly high degree of scepticism towards the left, the organised left, as we understand it, as a historical phenomenon.
0: Well, I guess as well, you know, the, the Zapatistas re- resuscitated the notion of civil society in the first part of their struggles as well. This is... This is is something that um, I think facing the kind of exhaustion of 20th century anti-capitalist politics, it's one of the terms that people have tried to revive, though it's quite confusing, I think, um, because of its openness and ambiguity, but maybe that's also why it's useful.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm sympathetic to the term and it's because of my experience here and I've been I have been thinking about trying to engage a bit more with civil society and and the kind of theory around it, um, you know, to try and give some direction to, 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 you know, to theorise some of this stuff a bit more, I guess. I can't say I have, so I don't have a lot to say say about it. But but, um, certainly in the Japanese context, the idea of the shimin uh, as a politically active citizen, I guess, is quite an important one to these movements, but also to the whole history of post-war Japan. The idea that, you know, um, the reason that the war happened, the reason that Japan engaged in this kind of imperial expansionist project in the early 20th century was the lack of political independence and democracy and individualism within the society. And therefore, we have to create a subject that is informed by sort of liberal ideas of the subject, I guess as Certainly as a more individualistic subject um, but one that's engaged in collective struggles for democracy and freedom and peace so, and I guess where some of the ambiguity comes in with the you know, going back to the sort of history and I have talked about this a bit in the book you could have bring it up earlier is there are those who are skeptical because that idea is very much seen as um, also tied in with kind of westernisation and the idea that Japan is somehow backward and lacking in those kind of liberal ideals and therefore, you know, what's needed is a more sort of um, classical Western liberal kind of idea of, um, or at least inflected by that kind of tradition, idea of political participation. And that's where some of the groups like to explore more like the different kinds of radical resistance that occurred in japan kind of in early meiji or even pre-meiji as going hang on a minute there are actually indigenous democratic traditions here we we don't need to sort of engage in this kind of um, celebration i guess of like western liberal democracy There's there's
0: this amazing bit in the book where you describe this scene where there are some young guys with skateboards is it jumping up and down oh, yeah. Yeah. shouting yeah. why not why not what what what's the history of that slogan
2: yeah so that's that's referencing the erdeneke rebellion which was a um it was a kind of period of mass civil unrest at the end of the edo period so when um Japan was forcibly opened up to the West or particularly to America um, with the arrival of, you know, three gunboats from the US basically demanding Japan open to trade. And that basically catalyzed the slow breakdown of the existing order, which was a feudal government organized around a um, the Tokugawa clan. And in the final days of that um kind of breakdown when there was a sort of general dissolution of existing forms of authority. You had um, various uprisings and rebellions, and this was a classic one of these rebellions, the Ejanaika rebellion. So there were – people were protesting. I can't, I don't remember what the sort of specific issues that gave rise to it were, but um, I think what, you know, Shiroto-Nuran ran the group I've talked about a little bit, that term ran, which is in their name, is a reference to these kinds of peasant rebellions. Um, I mean, the air common was actually more of an urban uprising, but the idea that the common classes, that which were the peasants in the countryside and the so-called chonin, uh, which was the townsfolk in the Edo period, So in in, in Edo, you had a sort of caste system. You were a member of one of four main castes, and those were the two lower-class ones, basically. That's slightly more complicated than that, but let's let's go with that. So their idea is to sort of revive the idea that taking part in protest and, you know, rebellion is a normal part of Japanese history and that, you know, reclaiming those ideas – is a way to sort of reclaim a kind of Japanese and maybe Asian tradition of protest that doesn't necessarily have to coincide with um, so-called Western ideas of protest and struggle.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah, I guess the other... And like, I, also, I, I just love that slogan, why not, right? Like, I think that's... that's <laughs> That's a fant- like it, it. That's a fantastic slogan. Uh, look, I, I want to g- look at the trajectory and where the anti nuclear movement is now. But before we go on, I, I guess just to, to dig a little bit further into this question of like how people in in this movement, are understanding and conceptualizing the world. You know, like you're there with a p- particular political perspective, and I guess our friends and comrades in Japan, they're reading people like Hart and Negri, so communists, you know, David Graeber presents there, an anarchist, John Holloway goes there. There's the kind of, I guess, Japanese feminist tradition that I kind of encountered via you that seems to be quite anti capitalist what kind of resonance do these kind of ideas and terms have within the movement when you know yourself or hart and negri identify themselves as communist or graber sees himself as an anarchist is, is that just alien to i guess the post frita social space or do they see some do they see those ideas are being those terms as being completely lost or they've got some value in them
2: I think it is a slightly different, difficult question to answer, but I I suspect it's a little bit similar to our experience in Australia, yeah, which is that the as people who are deeply in, influenced by theory, we are in the minority in social movements that we participate in. A lot of people that you know we meet in the social movements we're engaged with are not as, <laughs> as versed in. Kind of like the long theoretical debates on Marx, etc., as you or I, yeah. So I think broadly speaking there's a lot of similarity there. <clears throat> In terms of um, the free to movement, I definitely think some of the especially kind of new anarchist type theory has been influential and you know there is quite a lot of interest in things like the Temporary Autonomous Zone, Hakim Bey, Zapatistas, absolutely, Um, Hart and Negri, much like I think Hart and Negri, everywhere in the world are seen by most people as being very theoretical, very academic. And so in those sort of circles of, you know, intellectual um, um, radicalism, you know, they're widely read. And outside of them, not so much. I think that's that's broadly true, <laughs> um, wherever you are in the world. But certainly, I think the ter- ter- I mean terms like communist in in Japan, unlike in Australia, I mean co- the Communist Party is still a perhaps vibrant, wrong word, but it's a massive organisation. It has, you know, um, members of I don't know whether most, but huge numbers of local councils. I assume at the prefectural level, I've never really looked at prefectural electoral politics much because it's never seen that relevant, but certainly in Tokyo metropolitan government and in the national government as well. So, you know, com- communists does tend to carry a very strong, much more of a implication of, you know, the communist party and, and that sort of thing, or perhaps to the sects, the non, non-party sects that, um, are very very small and not that relevant to most struggle in you know in, the, and, in these days. And but having a, f- a mass communist party, you know, does mean that. Yeah, I guess maybe that's partly where anarchism has its popularity in the kind of free to world is that it's seen as quite
0: different. And there's that famous communist novel from is the twenties is it that became popular again in Japan about a people working on a boat catching crabs or.
2: Yeah, that that's is the um, the cannery ship. That was a sort of interesting little phenomenon in the mid, you know, going back to the the free to movement and how it emerged was that one of the things I guess that that drove that movement was the growing realization of how much casualization, part time work, dispatch work, where you know you work for a labour hire company and then you get sent to a like temping. And in that context, this novel about conditions on a cannery boat in the 19... Yeah, I think it's the 1920s. um, It's shipping in the the Sea of Okhotsk, which is between Hokkaido and Russia, you know, freezing cold, hard conditions. And it's about an uprising that takes place there as the workers start to unionise under the influence of communists. It's quite a sort of formulaic in a way. Part of the proletarian writers movement, um, Kobayashi was was tortured to death by the police. So he was a you know he was a communist activist, and that novel enjoyed a resurgence, um, and it was it then sparked quite a significant um, increase in people joining the communist party actually. But I guess it was seen more as a bit of a symbol of you know um, this guy somehow tapping into this growing reality of exploitation and um, marginalisation of workers, harassment by their bosses, you know, and use of power, uh, inappropriate use of, sort of power in the workplace that's going on.
0: You know, I guess, you know, you, you had this moment where we were saying that there's some kind of uh, resonance between the anti-nuclear movement and the movement of, of the squares. I guess the inheritance mm. of the movement of squares is quite debated about at the moment this huge mobilizations uh, kind of generalized hostility to the political structure on the whole and identification with being the people or the citizens then they all seem to kind of hit a wall sometimes police pr- repression and then kind of disappear w- where's the anti-nuclear movement in japan at now
2: this is a you know a, you know obviously a critical question um uh, in the conclusion to the book, what I've argued is that, you know, obviously the actual protests, et cetera, et cetera have massively declined. That's, um, well, that's just a fact. What does that mean? It's possible to interpret that pessimistically and say, oh, well, you know, everything's just gone back to normal. But I don't think that really um, describes, again, I think it's not factually true. The nuclear, the, the, the current um, government, the Abe government, is a return to the Liberal Democratic Party government since 2012, late 2012 elections, um, have slowly but steadily pursued um, the policy of restarting nuclear reactors where possible. However, in the wake of the disaster, the splits in the elites, the massive protest movements, a much more severe regulatory regime was brought in and most of the reactors just simply will never meet the standards. There's no real new infrastructure coming online. There's a couple that are supposedly in 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 the works, but no new ones will be commissioned after those, and I doubt those will ever be built. So one way or another, nuclear power is, is going to be phased out. I don't think there's really any doubt about that. And so, you know, I guess my... And I have said this many times when people have brought this up to me is, you know, if you've got a movement that's to end nuclear power, for all intents and purposes, they have achieved that goal, and now that movement is no longer active in the same way. I mean, isn't that that's to me not a defeat or a decline? It's it's just a recognition that you know there's a. I mean, it, it shows the success of the movements.
0: Is it experience as a success?
2: Well, I suppose that's something I'll have to try and, you know, um, suss out a bit more over the next couple of years. I've just arrived for another two-year stint, so um, I will ask that question more. But one of um, – I was talking to a writer, Tsurumi uh, Watharu, who has been active throughout all of these struggles that we've been talking about. His first book came out in the 80s. And it's a book about suicide. And so it really goes back to the alienation and despair of, you know, the emerging kind of Frita social layer uh, in the 1980s, right through to his latest book, which is about um, basically how how to live for free. So the attempt to try and create alternative economic relations outside of um, work and cons- you know, maintaining consumption through trading, sharing, growing your own food, etc. Now, you know, Tsurumi said to me, you know, oh, you know, you won't find the demonstrations and things on a mass scale that you found when you were here last time. And I said, yeah, you know, I, I sort of, I, I follow, you know, I follow the, the basic news. I sort of, I'm aware of that. But he said, I think that um, what's important is trying to create spaces where people can. Continue to be- develop you know sociality. Um, I'm slightly paraphrasing there. Which I thought was interesting because in some ways that's what the function of that those early free to groups was. And I thought in a way, is this sort of or is this a regression? Is this sort of a repetition of the the same kind of you know, is it not moving forward? I mean you know, you and I both follow Navarra Media uh, quite closely and, and they've jumped fully on board with this idea that we've moved from, you know, kind of pre-political or folk politics through kind of mm-hmm. demonstrations to now the real business of getting a party elected. Now that sort of party political, um, there's certainly been a revitalization of party political organising as part of the nuclear movement and, and since, However, that has not taken on the same kind of mass scale as it has in Britain. And I think for those who are more interested in the kind of decentralised civil society type approach, it's still ambivalent about those kind of um, electoral politics. So I don't know what, you know, what it means um, for the future. The big issues that are coming up on the kind of like you know, what people will be protesting against the government about. Um, The big P political issues are going to be around constitutional revision. Um, The current government wants to actually amend the constitution to recognise its defence forces, the so-called self-defence forces, um, which are currently, you know, unconstitutional. I don't think there's any real doubt about that, but um, to, to... normalize as that's the way the current the other government Phrases what they're trying to do. It's like well a normal country has an army and so for, for those who are committed to the post-war ideals of democracy peace and justice which definitely encapsulates You know most of what was the anti-nuclear movement and all of the older institutions of kind of civil society in Japan that is a real testing point, because that is kind of like the, the sacred ground, is the Constitution, Article 9, the peace clause. Um, but for those involved in the free-to-networks, one of the other, I guess, key uh, things I've seen is a real internationalization. And that has been less about connecting with European and American sort of trends. Like in 2008, when we were here for the G8, we saw that as... Um, we probably saw that as a key part of what was going on because you think of G8, you think Seattle, you think Europe. But even then and certainly now, the real focus for a lot of the activists I'm um, in touch with is more connecting locally with Korea, um, Taiwan in particular, and, uh, and, you know, other Asian countries to try and sort of network more with other parts of Asia. And I think that is probably where some of the most – interesting possibilities lie. That's that's basically what my research project is um, officially about that I'm here for this time, is to look at those transnational links in the East Asian context. And if you think about the sort of geopolitical dynamics that, you know, it's a lot in the news in Australia at the moment, the rise of China kind of saber rattling on the Korean peninsula, Trump's kind of weird combination of, Militant nationalism with um, wanting to withdraw U.S. troops from some of the empire of bases, as Charles Johnson calls it, which include, you know, which really goes to the heart of the the kind of post-war settlement in East Asia, which is mm. that U.S.-backed, you know, so-called democratic governments, i.e., Japan South Korea, Taiwan, against the so-called Soviet bloc sort of. Um, Socialist governments, i.e. China and North Korea. I mean that tension is still very real The demilitarized zone on the Korean Peninsula is still heavily um, You know, it's it's one of the most militarized zones in the world um, On either side of the DMZ anyway So, you know when you look at that situation of tension and of I guess Old power hanging on to power in those various nation states using militant nationalism as a kind of or militaristic nationalism as their rhetoric (coughs) or at the same time you have a growing inter-asia civil society not just at the sort of radical political level that i'm talking about but i you know looking at things like k-pop and the popularity of korean culture in japan pop culture in a country like Japan, which you know the ruling party relies so heavily on racialized ideologies of Japanese superiority and purity to maintain its kind of ideological um, hegemony and legitimacy, you can see the exciting possibilities that exist as peoples in Asia start to develop cross-border networks of you know of liberation of peace um, of civil society that don't depend on that sort of rigid um, and of course we you know the fear we have of, of what lengths those elites will go to to maintain that sort of militarized state of you know so-called normality. So I think a lot of the struggles that are going to emerge in the future will be around those issues but of course Predicting the future is a fool's game, so I won't try and, try and guess. But certainly those are some of the key struggles that have been going on the last couple of years and are likely to continue, I'd say, to be drawing a lot of the, the main attention. But my own focus is actually going to be moving away from the big issues um, and trying to look at those international links but also local society and to look at civil society in a much more localised level. And so, you know, I'm living in this um, municipality called Kunitachi and my my plan is to sort of focus on the social movements here, which includes sort of small feminist groups, um, residence movements. I'm living in a public housing complex and it has its own um, housing residence association and all these kinds of um low-level infrastructure of civil society, you know, the, the overlapping groups and how that creates a kind of a social fabric. That's kind of what I'm i am mean, going to try and dig into a bit more over the next mm. couple of years.
0: And, and you'll be writing about this on your blog.
2: Indeed, indeed. I have written a couple so far and the, the next one is coming now so, that the
0: uh, New Year period is over. And the blog is at?
2: So it's lovefromtokyo.co.
0: And I know your partner Mel was talking as well about maybe a podcast.
2: Yes, we are. We are working on the podcast plan. The transition with uh, two children to Japan has been quite challenging. So once we get, you know, a little bit more settled, then uh, we're hoping to start a podcast, much like this great podcast. Um, maybe some conversations with each other about what we've seen, but also maybe some interviews with people. We might have to look at exactly how we're going to pull that off with mm. language issues, et cetera, but, you know, I'm sure that we can do something.
0: But it's crucial, right? Like I think, you know, one of the things that, again, coming from that, you know, post-operismo background is a focus on the on like the circulation of struggles, and you know you know you s- you started the conversation with about you know the problem of the class subject and i think you know a lot of radical politics assumes that you know just the exploitation under capitalism automatically produces a class subject but i think there's mm. a far more important kind of idea it's the circulation of struggles that allow people to understand their individual experiences of antagonism with capital and the state or patriarchy or racism, whatever, as part of a broader mesh of struggles. And one thing we don't seem to be particularly good in Australia is actually, for a whole range of reasons, is actually plugging into um, the struggles that are going on in the Asia-Pacific mm. in a way that actually the the links of capital are plugged in and there are a bunch of comrades such as yourself and other you know our our close comrades as well who are doing who are doing this work now you know who are building those kind of uh transnational links and i think it's really important to kind of get those experiences like getting through the the arteries and veins of um you know the class on a on a broader scale, and particularly in Australia, where like a history of anti Asian racism has been so important to the to capital's rule here.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I'm still shocked in a way at how little we seem to know about what's going on in this at the social movement level in Asia, mm-hmm. in Australia, and so you know hopefully we can contribute a little bit to that i mean maybe you know i think one of the things about being involved in asian studies academic world for the last you know is it now like nine years is that in academia yes you do see you know lots of papers at conferences are about different movements in china or japan or, or all you know all over the region but in our sort of social movement media scape it's pretty limited and it's still very much like, I mean, you know, I still follow what's happening in, in Britain so closely. Um, I mean, I'm that's important in its own way for various reasons, but we do need to sort of try and create those links more. Um, I have been writing a little bit about that in the anti-nuclear side of things, the Australia, Japan, anti-nuclear connection. Hopefully my paper about that will come out of peer review one day. But, um, yeah, that, I think it is an important that we start to sort of look more locally and that's what the, the activists here in Japan have been doing is really going, more. okay, you know, across the pond <laughs> is Korea. It's it's literally, you know, if you get a good fare, it can be a 100 or so equivalent of a couple of hundred bucks to go there and re- return. People have been doing that more and more and that's been really interesting to meet some of the Korean activists here in Japan um, and to hear the, the report back, so hopefully I'll be able to put a bit more of that up and and uh, you know see more of that kind of activity with with uh, Australia as well. Those those links.
0: I think we thanks, should, probably, th- th- we think we should yeah. probably finish there. Um, I think we should. Thanks, Alexander. It's it's Thank really you so much. It's really lovely to to chat again. So it's Yeah, like, you know, thank you and, very much, and it's great to talk to you. Uh, I think, as I said before, the book's really fantastic. As an academic text, it's uh, – look, I'll, I'll put the details up. It's probably out of most people's price range. There's no soft cover coming out at all, is there?
2: I'm hoping – they did tell me – the e-book is much more affordable. Mm-hmm. I have noticed even the hardback has come down a lot, although it's still much more expensive than um, – you know, you could reasonably afford as an individual, but um, if libraries are, you know, an option for you, then um, ask your library. It's called Anti Nuclear Protest in Post Fukushima Tokyo, and it's from Routledge, and so um, published May two thousand eighteen. Yeah. They did tell me that twelve months after the publication, they would look at a paperback. So I'm hoping that brilliant in later this year we might have um, something a bit more reasonable that people can grab. While I, was,
0: while I was reading it, like one of the things that really jumped out to me was how people in Japan were kind of engaging in a funny way with some of the questions that comrades in Brisbane were trying to do as well as you yeah, know, yeah. The, the, the city and issues of livability in the city and how, yeah, that, yeah. How, that, how that intermeshed with transformations in the proletarian condition towards more precarious work were, were sitting mm. together. Where the workplace itself was not really particularly the site of struggle, but the city as a site of the accumulation of value was right. And um, mm-hmm. it, it's you, you. And it's it's going back. It's like I was reading this stuff. I was like, I kept on thinking, oh, this you know, someone you know, they would love this. <laughs> you know, like not just the 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 book, but that experience in Japan would really inspire them and really speak to what they're attempting to do.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it is worth mentioning that. Um... My The book is pretty heavily based on the thesis. The thesis is freely available through the University of Wollongong Library. And if you go to lovefromtokyo.co, there's a publications link. And I've got there a link to the thesis. So you can read that online, download it, whatever. Yep, um, it's a PDF. And mostly, uh, the last chapter is the main one, there's, which is kind of substantially rewritten. The rest of it is pretty much... Following the thesis, so yeah. If anyone's interested in, it, would like to read it online, just have a look at the thesis. And are you on? Yeah,
0: are you on Twitter at all or other forms of social media? No, like I'm people, not on any
2: Twitter, Facebook. I'm just me, my name. Um, but the Tokyo Love co is where I'm planning to try and kind of put material from this brilliant. current project. So check that out.
0: Well, that's brilliant. Well, lots of love, Alexander. Hopefully, we chat uh, again soon. If you do. Okay. Cheerio. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.
1: 空が